and welcome to What Leaders Know, the podcast for people on leadership journeys. I'm your host, Penny Beeston. I help people take their careers to the next level. Learn more at whatleadersknow.com. Today's episode is part two of a two-part conversation I have with Shane Shalepi. Shane's an assistant commissioner with the Queensland Police Service and the operations commander COVID-19 with QPS. In part one of this conversation, Shane wrapped up the journey through the early part of his leadership career and the learnings he took away from these. In part two of the conversation, Shane opens up about the role of ego in the development of leaders. Shane expands on his leadership at executive level when he is appointed to assistant commissioner, initially leading the Community Contact Command and later the Organisational Capability Command. Shane's leadership journey prepared him well for his current role as Operations Commander COVID-19 with QPS and he's generous in sharing his own leadership journey as he wrangles the biggest leadership demands of his career. Welcome Shane. Thanks Penny, really pleased to be here. I'm interested in your take on how people manage ego. Yeah, thanks Penny. I think a lot of executive leaders have ego. We wouldn't be here if we didn't have some sort of drive, ambition, and ego, but sometimes you just got to check that ego at the door. And at certain times, and we spoke about it before about having people that you can trust, people that will give you honest feedback. I think that's the best way to manage your ego. And uh, and I don't just talk about that in the work environment. I talk about that in your home environment because as a leader, um, there's no separation of work and home. It it travels with you. And um, to have a really strong support network to remind you at times that you have to check your ego. And that comes back to that feeling comfortable and understanding your place in leadership. I think if you feel that you walk in as a leader and you have to know all the answers, and sometimes you do get that pressure, you know. Even when I took over COVID command, people were looking to you to say, okay, boss, what are we going to do? And um, you sort of got to check that ego to think that you know everything that has to be done. And you have to be prepared to say to people, I don't know. And that includes your senior executive that sit above you. And you've got to be comfortable in saying, I need some time to think about that, or I don't honestly know, but I'll find out and I'll, I'll do some work on that. And that's been you know, really powerful during the COVID journey where so many things have changed and you know, the direction you were heading all of a sudden one day is different the next day. To be able to say, I don't know, but let's go into here and let's all contribute to an outcome has been the outcome for me has been really powerful. Going forward to 2015, you were Chief Superintendent and District Officer South Brisbane District. How did you identify and roll out your priorities in those first 100 days? Thanks, Penny. Uh, South Brisbane District was, uh, I still hold dear to my heart now. I, I absolutely loved leading in that district. It's one of our biggest districts in the state. I had approximately 1,300 staff working with me in the district. It's one of the most multicultural districts that we have uh, in our state. It was a fantastic opportunity to go in there as a leader. I had a fantastic leadership team supporting me through that time. Um, It was a real change for me there. Really multicultural. There was a uh, really big community spirit in South Brisbane. So again, like I said before, building on success, I, I thought... The first 100 days was really important to set out some clear priorities for me. I came up with a rule of three as I talk, and if I talk about three things, people can generally remember my three things. And it really was about 
you know, reviewing our operations and delivering policing operations, ensuring that we had appropriate governance and standards across everything we do. And the third one was about our internal and external engagement strategies um, you know, with the community. And I, I hammered two key messages. And my two key messages were, we police with the community, not to the community. And that was around our, our community engagement. But our second message, which I went everywhere and spoke about, and I said, there's no excuse for treating a person poorly. And to me, that's a fundamental key of me internally. It's a, I would speak to constables and say, look, we have to treat people harshly at times. We have to arrest people. We have to take away their liberties. But we can do so with dignity. There's no excuse for treating a person poorly. We're well-trained, we're professionally equipped, you know, and that's the way we do it. That became really important in a multicultural district like uh, South Brisbane. You know, I really encourage staff to understand you know, those multicultural differences, you know, the nuances within the communities. And that led back to that message that there's no excuse for treating a person poorly. If you understood the way the Sikh community worked, if you understood you know, the way our Muslim community worked, you know, the way our Chinese community worked, you could then understand the traits and the challenges and you could adjust your policing styles to that. Uh, I spent nights and nights, as did my leadership team, engaging with those communities. It was very powerful to me to be able to understand the way the communities wanted their policing delivered to them. I set up a policing board uh, in that district and it was quite unique. And I asked community leaders to come onto my policing board as well as a range of academics so that when we designed policing strategies in the district, the communities felt that they had a voice in the way that we deliver our policing, ultimately knowing that I was responsible for the delivery of it. But it was a really interesting time. And what legacy still goes today? Uh, still today, uh, it's still one of our most multicultural communities. This isn't unique to South Brisbane. If you go to you know, the other areas of the state, we have strong relationships with our First Nations people. And we recognise the, the journey we've been on with our First Nations people. Not all of it good either, but we recognise that and we're storytelling that. And we do the same in South Brisbane. So the legacy that's left is when we are in troubling times, we can draw on the community and rely on the community to stand with us. We've seen some horrific things occur in our community recently. You know, we've seen the death of people through domestic and family violence. We've seen, while I was there, we had tragic events of attacks on our multicultural community. And at no time did the community ever stand separate to the police. We stood shoulder to shoulder. Uh, when we had attacks elsewhere in the country or overseas, terrorism attacks attributed you know, to Muslim communities or to particular faiths, what we saw there was that community come forward and stand shoulder to shoulder with the police and say, that's not the way we do it in Australia, that's not the way we do it in Queensland. And I think that's a great legacy. Shane, what do you do when you know we step into a new leadership role and we are uncertain? And, and yes, at one level you can say, I don't know. But in terms of reassuring those people on our team that it's okay for them to contribute and to come up with ideas or to propose what's working and what's not, what do you do? Thanks, Matty. I think you've got to have a couple of strategies here. I mentioned earlier about walking around, talking to the team and asking them, you know, what do you do? You've got to be careful how you, how you phrase that too because if people aren't comfortable in, you know, the senior manager so it really is about sitting down with them and explaining, you know, you're trying to learn the environment and, you know, I'm trying to learn what works here and what doesn't work. And, 
you've got to understand that a lot of people aren't necessarily that comfortable to share. So I, I recall back at one of the commands I was running, it was Organisational Capability Command, um, we had a really uh, big whiteboard in the office and it was like floor-to-ceiling whiteboard. And I remember writing three questions there. What do we do well? What don't we do well? And what shouldn't we be doing? And I've just put those three questions on the whiteboard and put a message out to all the staff that anyone walking past that whiteboard could write something. And what it allowed, first of all, we started to get some comments up there. And then as confidence built and we started to talk about it, without being asked, people were writing comments, but interestingly, they were putting their name. And that was a sign to me that they'd bought into it and I was actually building some trust with the staff because they were prepared to put their name behind the comment which allowed me to then go and explore that a little bit more. But that was a way you create an environment that says, you know, when you see the boss walking around the office with a cup of coffee, you can talk to him. It's just a normal person, or she, just a normal person. Um, Please engage, talk, particularly when you're being asked. Always have that answer ready to go. But for those people who, you know, may be a little bit more introverted or, or not used to that or have had a bad experience, to be able to put that ability for them to contribute in a way that they feel comfortable and safe, I think is really important. And a big step forward from the old suggestion box. Absolutely. I think the suggestion box is, is really, really dangerous in some, in some aspects um, because what you're doing is you're creating this you know, level of uh, anonymity that, uh, and no one else knows what's been put in there. So that by using a, a, an approach such as this, you'll see a comment written on a board and then you'll see other people come up and value add to the comment. Whereas the suggestion box, it's, it's singular thinking. It's, you know, this is what I think, it goes in there and, and you, you might look at 10 different suggestions and they're all opposing. What you're actually creating is you're creating this uh, approach where people can have different views publicly uh, in a safe environment. I think it's really beneficial. It's like a conversation. Absolutely. Mm. In 2016, you served as Acting Assistant Commissioner before being promoted to Assistant Commissioner and you commanded the Community Contact Command for two years before taking up the leadership of the Organisational Capability Command. What would you identify as the top five leadership strategies you gathered along your leadership journey that held you in good stead as you stepped into the executive leadership level of the organisation? Yeah, that's a real challenge, Penny. There's so many things. I've thought long and hard about this over the years. Uh, I think the first thing is never stop learning. You know, the first thing for me is there's no one way to leadership. And uh, it really is made up of your, your different experience and your learnings as you go away. And when I went into Community Contact Command and our Organisational Capability Command, I was able to draw back on some of those experiences from when I was a superintendent and and when I was at South Brisbane. And I don't think you could look at leadership in a rank-based structure, and I never have in the organisation. I, I think some of the learnings that I've learnt as a superintendent, as an inspector, regardless of rank, they're the leadership learnings, and they build up you as a leader and, and who you are. One thing I learnt right back early, clearly articulate your vision and goals. If you can articulate what you're trying to achieve, most people will come along the journey with you. And then be able to articulate, even if it's through storytelling or, or a bit of a vision about what that end state might look like, you know, what we're trying to get to. And I think as a leader, if you can set out the first bit about, you know, this is what my goals are and, and set out the back bit of the vision about what it might look like, 
I think you can, as a leader, you can leave the middle bit to your staff. That they'll deliver that bit for you. It's so, it's so good. When I moved into the executive role, the key thing for me was making time to think. As a leader, so many people wanted a piece of your time, and you're trying to deliver multiple outcomes at the same time. Uh, you need to be able to really balance the different priorities. And the first thing you tend to give up is your own leadership time to think. So you have to be really disciplined in making sure that you have time to think so that you can stay in the strategic or executive space of leadership. And that was that was something that really came to me there. Um, and due to the level I was operating in the organisation, the last thing I'd say is really understand risk and be prepared to engage with it and hold it. And I think some of our... Some of the leaders that I look towards are some of the better leaders that you know I try to learn from. They seem to have the ability to uh, not be paralysed by risk or not be afraid of risk. They understand it, they engage with it, and they use it as a strength of where to focus their priority or where to focus their time at different times as the risk shifts. So that's what I would look at. And so for leaders, again, on, on their own journeys, what kind of support should they look for within their organisation when they're looking for a sounding board if they're considering a risk and they're really unsure of whether it's a risk too far? Yeah, Penny, I think that's really important. I've always had mentors within the organisation, of my colleagues. I've always been prepared to accept uh, views of my colleagues, both my subordinates and my peers. And I think that's really important to have that network around you. I think what's really important around having a strong mentor, and I think sometimes we label things a lot. We say, you know, this person has to be a mentor where really they might be an ear. I have multiple mentors. I have executive coaches. Um, uh, I also have those people I can just go and sit with and have a coffee and, and say, am I seeing this through a very closed lens? And I think that's the important bit is to get those outside perspectives on something before you decide that, you know, that's some are very obvious. Some you, you'll know is a risk and, and you just need to put a Band-Aid solution on it initially or, or, you know, engage with it and deal with it. But other times where things are complex in the environment we operate in, you really need to have those other perspectives in. And, and I can, there's been a couple of occasions where people have said, I think you've become very narrow focused on on a particular issue and it, when you put it in the bigger system it, it's it's not the risk well the risk is there but it's not what you're looking at it's actually within the bigger system so finding those trusted and objective sounding boards is really important yeah absolutely and i think in an organization don't get hung up on uh rank or or positions within within the organization i, I still go and sit with constables and senior constables who i know i've worked with and I'll ask them, you know, look, from a frontline perspective, you know, what do you think of this? Or, or I've got other people who I know that will give me their honest appraisal of the way I'm thinking um, and challenge my thoughts. And I think that's really important. Early in 2020, the world becomes aware of a fast-moving pandemic. Australia calls it earlier than many nations. Queensland Police Service charges you with the new role of Operations Commander COVID-19 for QPS. Can you outline the role and take us back to when you were initially appointed to it? As COVID-19 got traction, what were the priorities and have those priorities changed over the course of the initial 12 months? Thanks, Penny. This is probably one of my most rewarding but challenging leadership times. Um, This has really challenged me as a leader within the organisation. I was walking up the hallway of headquarters. Uh, Deputy Commissioner asked to have a chat with me and 
spoke to me about something called COVID-19. COVID and none of us really knew what that meant at the time. But, you know, it was, you're going to a briefing in the next couple of days. You need to get your head into this space. I'll get you to do a little piece of work. At this stage, I wasn't standing up the command. Uh, over the next week, that developed and we realised the extent of, of COVID. I was given 10 weeks to take a planning uh, team offline. Uh, that was the time frame we had. And to try and prepare the organisation, not just QPS, but across government and how we were going to use our disaster management framework to support a whole of government response into COVID. Eight days later, we had our first case of COVID on the Gold Coast. So my 10 weeks shrunk <laughs> to eight days. Um, at that point in time, we didn't really have a playbook. We didn't have time for detailed planning. We'd, we'd understood the impact of COVID from overseas. My first priority there was really to leverage the relationships that I'd built up. I'd been the chair of the State Disaster Coordination Group previously. I have 10 years of experience working within our disaster management framework. Uh, so I immediately you know, used that known framework to deliver COVID in the first instance and called a meeting of the State Disaster Coordination Group, which has representatives from all across government, our non-government agencies, some of our private sectors uh, in that group. And I shared with them my knowledge of COVID and what I'd learned. And I had really good support from our health colleagues there. And we shared. And interestingly enough, I said to them, I don't know any answers to this at this stage. And, and it was a challenging point. But I shared that risk. I shared that, that ownership of, of leadership right across. Internally, I did the same thing. You know, we'd done some modelling early in those first 10 days and the commissioner was kind enough to call the executive leadership team of the organisation together. And I shared what we knew there. And some of that modelling uh, wasn't really pretty. At that stage, you know, as we've seen play out across the world, we were planning in Australia and in Queensland for a large number of deaths within our community. Um, it was sobering. We were planning for a large number of deaths within our organisation. And for an organisation that we hold proud, our history, our legacy, of our officers, uh, you know, we've got a really uh, small number of deaths in our organisation. And we were planning for deaths in our organisation in the hundreds. And I remember saying to our leadership team, by the end of COVID, we will all know someone in our organisation who has died from COVID. And that was really sobering to us. It really challenged all of those assumptions you've held in the past. Uh, who would have thought that, you know, within another four days from there, I was asked to plan to shut down our Indigenous and remote First Nations communities. Uh, if anyone had said to me that you could uh, shut down those 14, 15 communities, effectively locking people within their community without any unrest, uh, I, I would have thought you were crazy. Um, again, you know, it was really about setting that vision at the top for this one. It was really, really challenging. We had our First Nations communities that we had to protect, and that's what it was about. It was about protecting the community. We did that through engaging with our local government, allowing our police again, coming back to my water police days, having that message, having that clear articulation of what we wanted to achieve, but staying out of the widgets and allowing people on the ground who have got strong relationships to put that in place. And, and we achieved that. We uh, touch wood to today. We have not had any outbreak of COVID in our most vulnerable communities around Queensland. What I enjoy about hearing the backstory is the high calibre of sustained leadership across all levels of our government agencies as they respond to this threat. 
Uh, definitely, Peter. Look, there was lots of whole of government planning around, uh, and this is sad stuff to talk about, but we were planning around how does a state respond to large mass casualties of deaths, and we, we saw that play out in New York, and we saw that play out in the UK. So how do we do that? We're not set up for that. So we had to do some extensive planning across that whole state disaster coordination group around you know, what's our um, mortuary capacity, you know, what's our health and hospital services capacity. And it was at that point that, you know, we came up with a clear uh, mission, and that was not to eradicate but to limit the impact of COVID onto the Queensland community. And that was my first statement I made. That's our, that was our role as an organisation. So I had two leadership roles in COVID, one to lead within our organisation and one to lead right across government, across the state disaster coordination framework. And both of those roles held to that one vision to limit the impact. And we came up with the thought that if we could limit the impact of COVID on the community, it would allow our health and hospital services to have the capacity to deliver the best outcome for the community. And, and while, while they have the capacity and they have the lead, and understanding that this is a health-led uh, pandemic emergency, but it was about making sure that we were able to support them to allow the health department to focus on the health of Queenslanders and we take care of the rest. So you'll see that every strategy that we implemented over COVID uh, was focused around limiting the impact on the community. And I know they're quite contentious at times, but who would have thought that, you know, within two weeks of COVID starting, uh, I was asked to set up a hotel quarantine program because the federal government were um, closing the borders, the international borders, and we needed to get people home. So that, again, that was quite confronting. Um, it was challenging. We'd never done it before. There was no playbook. And again, it was about engaging across our network and relying on the, relying on the expertise of that whole of government team, our own team internally. We then had to do that to the road borders. I don't think we've shut the road borders in Queensland for well over 100 years. Uh, and we're getting pretty good at putting them up and down, by the way. Um, but every one of those strategies, uh, I was able to relay back to that one focus of mitigating the impact of COVID to the community. So by putting people in hotel quarantine, which you know it, we don't take lightly, we've got to balance those human rights against the, the rest of the risk to the community all the time. But by doing that, we're able to minimise the impact on the community by closing the borders around our First Nations vulnerable communities. It was about protecting those communities, stopping the impact. By putting up our road borders, um, by putting in our domestic airport borders, it was all about mitigating the spread of COVID through the community. And I was able to articulate to my team over a period of time that every strategy we did had to link back to that. Even washing your hands, uh, using hand sanitizers, staying 1.5 metres apart, if you, my, my overall strategy was if COVID came in through our borders, came in then into our community, our last line of defence was distance, washing our hands. Now, I didn't come up with the idea of washing your hands. That was health, of course, but, but it linked directly to our vision and, and that strong vision. How did you translate that vision into an easily digestible message? I did come up with four main things, which was limit uh, the impact and spread of COVID within the community. That was my early vision. Then I realised I had to build that out a little bit more. And that was about ensuring community safety and confidence. Uh, that was probably my second priority I came in. And there was different policing strategies over in China and some other countries. We saw some very strong policing strategies put into place around 
uh, isolation and, and separation. And even in Australia, we saw different policing strategies put into place across our, our country. We came up with uh, three things around our community safety, and that was the Queensland Police Service was going to communicate. We were then going to use compassion. And then if we needed to, as a last resort, we'd use our compliance. And those three C's that we talk about, and the Commissioner has spoken about that strongly from the top, has gone right through our organisation as a message, right down to the constable. And we were able to, again, that rule of three, keep people on track with, you know, if in doubt as a police officer, don't go to compliance. Now, this is brand new to our community. Let's, let's communicate and educate why we're trying to do something. Let's show compassion to our community. And if we do that, it comes back to that principle of policing with our community. And I really think in Queensland, the majority of the, the community has really strongly supported and got behind the COVID response, which has been the outcome. As an organisation, we've still had to take compliance activities in COVID. And again, we've had to balance that against protecting the broader community. Uh, and I was comfortable in that space as the, as the overall leader of COVID, as the operations commander, I was comfortable in knowing that everything we were doing was about protecting the community. The third probably priority I came up with was really about a sustained, healthy and supported workforce. And that was right from the beginning as well, because if I didn't have a really supported workforce internally, I risked losing them. And particularly if the workforce felt that we weren't being honest and, and showing integrity through our response to COVID. So I spent... Uh, with my team, and I, I use I a bit, but it really was about me being the front at this point in time, a very visible leadership in crisis. Deputy Golcheski, uh, you'll see, took a very visible leadership with the community, uh, and I took a very strong messaging role within the organisation, but it was about continually selling that purpose. The modelling showed that we were going to lose some officers within the organisation, and I felt that if the workforce didn't feel they were strongly supported and we were focusing to keep them healthy and their family, you know, they're going home to their family every night, that if we did start having those dire consequences that, you know, we wouldn't be able to hold our workforce. And the last thing was really about positioning the Queensland Police Service to respond to our future challenges. COVID wasn't going to be a short-term response and we knew at some point we were going to enter a high-risk weather season, which we're in now, you know, in, in a COVID environment. That would have been very difficult for us to deal with. So... We set out those four priorities. They probably came into play within our first couple of months of our response. And they've remained pretty consistent. You'll see they were pretty broad. But by keeping it really simple, I was able to say to the staff, you know, our end state in, in COVID would be that we've minimised the impact, that everyone going to hospital has actually had a hospital and health service that can have capacity to deal with it, that we'll show compassion, that we'll communicate and we'll use compliance as a last resort. At our peak, we had well over a 1,000 staff a day deployed to COVID duties. It allowed those officers the confidence of being able to make a decision, providing they could align it back to that vision. Because unfortunately in COVID as a leader, we weren't able to be prescriptive in what to do. We gave as much information out to our staff so they were well informed. We had a, a huge team. Uh, the commissioner decided to stand up the COVID command during it, but really at that point, that was formalising a role that I'd already taken on. I'd already been taken offline in COVID. But we had a large team there right across our sworn and our non-sworn staff, all working towards delivering for our front line. 
and it was about making sure that our front line was the most informed so that they could support the community through this event. It really has been uh, a challenging and rewarding time. I, I think the outcomes uh, that the whole Queensland community has achieved in COVID with really unfortunately six deaths in Queensland, but from the modelling and from what we've seen overseas, I think Queensland, Australia, uh, while, while there may have been some big P's in it at the time and politics, but you need to also engage with that as a leader and understand uh, what you're trying to achieve. But this has been one in Queensland I can speak for to say I truly believe that the Queensland community has policed with the Queensland Police Service to address COVID because if the community weren't with us, they wouldn't have stood for borders being closed, First Nation communities being locked down, hotel quarantine. Communities wouldn't stand for that at any other time. It must be a wonderful experience to find yourself leading this command and being able to say, we did it and we're doing it because I know it's not over. <laughs> I'll probably go to the way doing it at the moment, uh, uh, Penny. I, I, look, I still think we've got some real challenges ahead of us. You know, the vaccination program uh, is starting to roll out now and I think that's fantastic. And But I think this is going to be a life-changing moment for a lot of people. At the end of this... Um, I don't think we'll ever be back to a pre-COVID environment. You know, our world as we know it has changed. But I'd, I'd like to think that we're still doing it. Uh, we're definitely on, on a road to recovery. And now it's a different challenge as a leader. It really is about changing the posture as you move forward and be looking over the horizon to say, how do now do we lead the organisation and the community back into recovery? you know, within our disaster management framework. So how do we balance the risk to the community now moving back into recovery as we start to open up? How do we prepare ourselves uh, to be better prepared for an event like this in the future? And what are your thoughts around that? Look, I think the vaccination program is is fantastic. I think the, the basic human things that we do of, you know, hand washing now and using sanitizer and maintaining distance, I think that really is going to be a way of life moving forward. I think it's changed the way people um, operate. We saw a lot more people in Australia, we are a fairly remote country, uh, start doing things differently. I think it's refocused people on work-life balance. Uh, We've seen people working from home a lot more. We've seen um, a lot more people engage back into sporting events that we've ever had in this country before. So I think it's it's a reset within our broader community but something I'm looking for uh, within, as part of our executive leadership team and with the commissioner is then how does the Queensland Police Service leverage you know, in the way we've changed and how do we uh, you know, now leverage off this to continue delivering other things with the community? Shane, thank you for being so generous with your insights into leadership within the Queensland Police Service. You provided listeners with a visceral account of your response as a leader to our first pandemic in over 100 years. We sense the pressure for QPS to respond to the threat posed to our community and the critical need to focus on translating and delivering the necessary restrictions. Your sharing of your thought processes, considerations, team engagement, cross-government communication and collaboration gave us, the listeners, a bird's eye view of leadership under pressure. Thank you, Shane. Thank you, Penny. It's been great. Been a, a good reflection. Thanks for joining me for today's episode. I look forward to seeing you in next week's episode. Show notes from today's episode will be found on my website, whatleadersknow.com. See you next week and until then, stay safe.